Thank you very much, praise team. Thank you very much, congregation. Um, we talk about this sometimes. We don't always share it with you, but we talk about, I read in a book about congregational worship one time that the most important, I agree with the author, that the most important instrument in congregational worship is the voice of the congregational singing. And so I'm thankful that you take part in congregational worship, that it's not all special music, that it's not a concert, it's not for you to sit, but it's us worshiping the Lord together. Amen? It's a good thing, and I'm thankful that we get to do that together each and every week. Uh, good morning. Thank you for being here. I'll go ahead and tell you, I've told several of you, I'll tell the rest of you, uh, that because Halloween fell on a Sunday, I decided that I would dress up like a real preacher today. So... Now you know, those of you, I know some of you probably have been curious. I do know how to tie a tie, so um, there's that. Psalm 15, would you turn with me this morning to Psalm 15? We're beginning, I know it's one day early, but we're beginning our annual Psalms in November series uh, that we're going to look at. And this month, if you would like, or this year really, but for November, if you want to read ahead, uh, they're going to be in order this, this time. So we're doing Psalm 15 today, next Sunday, Psalm 16, the next Sunday, Psalm 17, and then the Sunday, what I call Thanksgiving Sunday, that Sunday right before Thanksgiving, um, will be in Psalm 18. And so those are the Psalms we'll look at if you want to look at those. Uh, I'm excited about Psalm 18 on that Thanksgiving Sunday. It is the longest Thanksgiving Psalm written in the Psalter, and so that's what we'll get to spend time looking at together that Thanksgiving Sunday. But this morning, so we do have to sort of change our mindset, right? We've been in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts is very much narrative, descriptive, things that happen, the Psalms, right? We know what Psalms are. This is poetry. This is music. There's heightened language. There are similes and metaphors and things of that nature, and so we transition. We make the change mentally. But we're starting off with a short one, only five verses, so I think we'll be able to work through this together this morning. Uh, at our house, if you were at our house on any given day, you might hear, there are a couple of things that you might hear Amanda or myself say. Uh, we have things that we will repeat to our kids every now and then to help them remember. And a couple of them, like we say, Kilpatrick's don't cheat. You know, if they're playing a game and somebody stows away an extra card or hides an Uno card, we say, Kilpatrick's don't cheat. And sometimes you would hear us say, Kilpatrick's don't lie. That's something that we say. It's a mantra we have. It's something we try and stick with. Well, today what we're going to see is the psalmist asking a question that's going to give us some kind of mantras or generalizations like that for God's people. He's going to ask a question of God uh, of who, what type of person would be allowed to dwell in God's presence and then the last four verses of the psalm are going to answer that. And so they're basically telling us God's people do this or God's people don't do this in very much the same way. So look with me in Psalm 15. We'll look at verse 1 to see the question that's asked, that's addressed to God, but that is no doubt for our benefit. And then we'll spend the rest of our time looking at the answer. So Psalm 15, 1 says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent... Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And so here, Lord, if you'll notice whenever you look in your scripture, and, the, and the, the word Lord is all capital letters. That is Yahweh. That is God's 
uh, individual name that he told the people, this is my name. And so the psalmist is addressing this directly to God. He says, O Yahweh, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And now, for us to really understand what the psalmist is talking about here, you have to put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite living in the Old Testament. We don't know exactly when this was written, but it had been during the first temple period. And so these people would have remembered the time of wandering in the wilderness. They weren't there, but they would have heard about it and they would have recognized it. And so for them, whenever it says here in your tent, I have a picture for you. Uh, Some of you are very visual people. I've tried to be attentive to that. Uh, So we have here the tabernacle. That's the name, or the tent of meeting. Tabernacle means tent. But this, in the, in the wilderness time, God gave very specific instructions to Moses and then to the people of Israel that when they were going, wherever they would go and wherever they would camp, that they would set up the tent of meeting. So before there was a temple, this is where God's presence dwelt. If you go back and look in Exodus 16, you can read about how they would see a fire there. They would see God's presence in a cloud during the day and by fire by night. And they knew that God was with them. So whenever the psalmist says here, who can sojourn or who can stay, it's a short stay. Who can be allowed to come near and stay in your tent. And then the second part of that verse, it says, Who shall dwell, live, stay on your holy hill? And so I have another picture. So uh, if you don't know, Mount Zion, not this Mount Zion, the Mount Zion in Jerusalem was literally a mountain, uh, not that big of a mountain, but it was higher than the areas around it. And that's where the temple was built. So whenever God told David, you're not going to build me a temple, but your son is going to build me a temple. And Solomon built the temple. The place that it was, was Mount Zion. And so whenever it says here, Yahweh, who can come near to your tent? Sojourn, who can come near to your tent? Who can dwell? Who could spend time on your holy hill? It's not really about a tent not really about a heel. What the psalmist is asking is, God, who can come into your presence? What type of person would be allowed into the presence of God? Very fitting question, especially to ask people in the Old Testament times, as they would think that not everyone was allowed to just walk into the temple. Not everybody could just go to the tabernacle and tent of meeting without being struck dead. So he's asking, what type of person could do that? So point one this morning, I just want us to recognize this, that there are expectations for God's people. Psalmist is making that clear here. He's asking God, what is it that you expect of your people? Who would you count as your people? Who would you allow to be close to you? Who would you allow into your presence? And then he spends the rest of these verses, except for the very end of verse 5, answering that question. Now, here's how we're going to do it this morning for time's sake, because there's a lot here, a lot of specifics as we try and look at these words and understand the language of poetry written thousands of years ago. But as we look at this, verse 2, I believe, kind of gives us an overarching picture of what God expects of his people. Then verses 3, 4, and the first part of 5 kind of flesh that out a little bit more. So we're going to spend most of our time on verse 2, and then we'll just quickly hit 3, 4, and 5. Talk about them a little bit more on a Wednesday night to come up soon. But verse 2, where we're going to kind of camp out for a minute, look there with me. He 
who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. In this one verse, the psalmist gives us the overarching expectation that God has for his people. And it's beautiful, and it's meaningful. And so I just want us to look at these, these words, what do these mean. Because here's, if most of you are like me, you hear the first question, all right, I understand the tabernacle, I understand the holy hills, Mount Zion, who can get close to God? And then it starts out, he who walks blamelessly. And you say, I'm out. That was quick, wasn't it? Somebody that's blameless, never done anything wrong, I'm out, we're done. None of us are getting up the hill. None of us are going into the tent. But good news for all of us here this morning is that the Hebrew word here for blameless doesn't literally mean somebody that's never done anything wrong. I've got the definition spelled out from a scholar, Van Gierman. He's, he's a lot smarter than I am, so I'm just going to give it to you in his words. He says, The blameless walk is the manner of life characterized by integrity. The word signifies a moral way of life. It is not synonymous with perfect, but with an attitude of heart desirous of pleasing God. So when he starts right here, what he tells us is that that he who has a walk, a pattern of life where he desires to please God. He doesn't do everything perfect all the time. He doesn't do everything right all the time. But that's our heart's intent. That is our desire. We want to walk in a way is pleasing to God. We want to live our life in a way that is pleasing to God with integrity. So when, when people are watching, we do the right thing that God would expect us to. And when people aren't, when we're on our own, we still, that is our heart's desire. We want to please God. And so that's the first thing that we see here, that if we are going to be God's people, if we are God's people, our life will be marked by wanting to please God, by wanting to do the things that he has for us. The second one doesn't need as much explanation uh, and does what is right. We understand that means what it means. The only nuance I would give you is that whenever it says who does what is right, it's literally talking about what is expected of them if they were standing before a judge, that the judge would say, yes, this person has done what was expected of them. This person has done their job. This person has done what they should have done. So their their actions are judged by someone else as being correct, being right, being what they should. But when you put those two together, I think we see something that's very important for us to make note of. That it starts to show this picture that, that blameless means that we want to have a, a style of life, a pattern of life that's pleasing to who? I want y'all to really answer. That's pleasing to who? God, right? We want to walk in a way that's pleasing to God. And then the type of person who does what would be judged as right. And who does the Bible make very clear is the ultimate judge? Right? God is the one who will judge us. Jesus, God, will judge everyone. And so the pattern that we start to see here is not somebody who does what they think is right. Not somebody who does what they want to do, but God's people will be the type of people who does what God wants them to do. I want you to hear that very clearly this morning, that to do the right thing, to walk blamelessly, does not mean doing what we think is right. 
It does not mean doing what society thinks is right. It does not mean doing what our friends think is right. It does not mean doing what feels right in our heart. It means doing what is right as revealed by God sovereignly in His Word. Whatever God says is right. Whatever God declares, because not an opinion when it comes from God. It means that we do what God says we should do. That's the type of person that will be allowed into God's presence. That's the type of life that God's people should be living. But there's one last thing here in verse 2. It says, and speaks truth in his heart. So what's the psalmist referring to here? It, it's the idea that, that not only do we want to please God with our actions, not only do we do what God says is right with our actions, but we also have those same thoughts and same desires on the inside. Because sometimes it's a lot easier to walk a walk and make everybody think we're doing what's right than it is to actually desire to do what's right. Have y'all ever been in that place? You're doing the right thing because you want to please your mom or you want to please your boss or you want to please your spouse, but inside you're saying, I hate this. I don't want to be doing this. I'm doing what's expected of me because I want to look good, but I cannot stand it. He says that's not the type of life that God's people will live. That they'll do what the Bible says and they'll follow a pattern of life that's pleasing to God and they'll want to do it. They'll speak truth in their heart. What you say in your head is also what you're doing on the outside. So really, if I'm trying to sum up verse 2, this is, what I, this is how I see the picture. It's somebody who is saying to ourself and then doing on the outside what lines up with God's expectations. What I think and what I do both line up with God's expectations. Point two, God expects alignment to his word inside and out. Believe that's the overarching picture that we see in Psalm 15. The psalmist says, who will be allowed into God's presence? What will the life of God's people look like? This is what it will look like. It will look like a life that is aligned with His Word, that does the things that the Bible calls us to do, and that will desire to do those things. We will think that way, and we will act that way. Actions and thoughts lined up with God's Word. And then he, he spells that out more fully, fleshes it out in verses 3, 4, and 5. So let's quickly look at those together. Verse 3, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So we see here this idea of not slandering, a word that we use more often that would be fitting as well as gossip, right? Not gossiping, not lying, not saying false things about other people, not spreading things that try to make other people look bad. God's people aren't those type of people. God's people aren't divisive people in that way. Who does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So you can take neighbor, you can take friend. These are people that we are around. These are associates. These are people that we love. These are people that we care about. And we have no desire, verbally or otherwise, to hurt these people. To say mean things to them, to say mean things about them, it's not the desire of God's people. We don't want to see evil become of our friends. We don't want to see bad things happen to our neighbors and those people that are around us. 
I did think this was interesting. I wanted to share this with you as I was reading this week. Uh, Calvin, in his commentary on Psalms a long, long time ago, he took this just one step further. And whether it's exactly fair or not, I think it's very, it's a very interesting thing for us to think about. He said that, that not only does this include the idea of not gossiping about your neighbor or speaking ill about your neighbor, but he said he believes it also includes the idea of not being really ready to listen to gossip or lies about our neighbor. And I thought that was an interesting thought because, you know, a lot of us, because, again, we want to look on the outside really good whether we feel that way on the inside or not. We're not, we, I'm not going to gossip about somebody. I'm not going to tell lies or talk bad about somebody. But I might be really ready to listen if you want to. You want to tell me something bad? I'll listen. I'm not going to share it, but I sure am excited to listen to what you have to say bad about so-and-so. Calvin thinks that this verse 3 precludes Christians from being able to do that either. I think it's a very interesting thought. Verse 4 continues, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt, and does not change. So the, the type of people, whenever it says a vile person, the, the idea there is somebody that is opposed to God, an enemy of God, those are vile people in the Bible's definition. So, so we, are, we are against people that are against God, and we are for people that are for God. Right? We recognize who our brothers and sisters are, and we are for those people. But the enemies of God would be our enemies as well. And then that last one where it says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. It's talking about the idea of making an oath, taking a contract, making a promise. You know, because sometimes whenever we, we make a promise, if, if part of the promise, if part of the contract, if part of the oath is, if I don't hold up my end, it will cost me this, we can be really easy. It's really easy for us to if we don't hold up our end, to not want to pay the debt. It says, no, here, the, the people of God are honest people, right? They're the type of people who whenever we swear to our own hurt, whenever we take an oath, whenever we sign a contract that would be hurtful towards us, if we don't uphold it, if we don't uphold it, we pay the penalty. We do what we say we're going to do. We, we keep our word. We are honest people. That's the idea that we see there. And then the first part of verse 5 who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. And again, for time's sake, we're not going to look at all the nuances of this. I think it really, it really carries the idea of taking advantage of somebody in need or taking part in corruption. God's people don't take advantage of vulnerable people. Right? We see a pattern throughout the scriptures that God's people in the Old Testament, they were called to care for sojourners and aliens who were without a home, who were in a vulnerable position. We're called to take care of widows. We're called to take care of orphans. We see this over and over and over, this pattern that when people are down and out, that God's people don't take advantage of them. It's not the type of people we are. That we're not corrupt people. Even when we have the opportunity to take a bribe and that sort of thing, we don't. That's not who we are. We have integrity. It's how God's people live. Christians do all of these things. So just a reminder of point two, because we see all this here. God expects alignment to his word 
inside and out. That's what you see there. In those verses, you see over and over different patterns of living that the Bible holds up in other places. These are things that should be important to you, and these are things that should be important to me. Just as I say, Kilpatrick's don't cheat and Kilpatrick's don't lie, you should be able to say, God's people live blameless lives. God's people do what is right. God's people speak truth in their heart. God's people don't slander and gossip over and over. You can go through all of these and say those about God's people. And if we're God's people, then we should live that way. The last thing that we see at the end of verse 5, and it's a beautiful thing, is the promise that comes for people that live this way. He who does these things shall never be moved. And that's the last point, point three. With just an ever added in there for the emphasis to understand, I think, exactly what the psalmist is spelling out here. God's people will never, ever be moved. And it's a promise that we see throughout Scripture. Because when you live this type of life, let's just be honest, in a corrupt world like the one that we live in, in a corrupt society like the one that we live in, it can look like if I live this way, if I'm not ready to listen to gossip, if I'm not willing to share a, a bad thing about somebody else in order to put them down so that I can get an advantage to get ahead at work or whatever, if I'm never going to take a bribe, if I'm never going to try and take advantage of somebody that's in a vulnerable position, and everybody else is, then I'm going to get left behind, right? It, it can look like if I try to live the way that the Bible calls me to live, a way that many people feel is antiquated, Right, if I try and live that antiquated kind of life, doing whatever the Bible tells me to do, then I'm going to get swallowed up, I'm going to get chewed up, spit out, and defeated by everybody around me. But the promise here is not for riches. Right? It's, it's not asking what type of person will have street smarts. It's not asking what type of person will, will be the CEO. It's not asking what type of person. It's not asking those things. The question is, what type of people will be allowed close to God? And so if what's important to you is being near to God, if that's more important to you than, than money or fame or any of those things, then the promise here is a good promise for you because the promise is if you live this way, you will be close to God and you'll never be removed from Him. You'll never find yourself without being close to God. And so there, there's Scripture, there are a ton of them. And I don't do this often, but I wanted to share a few with you because these promises are something for us to hold on to in the life that we live. So in Romans 8 35 through 39, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, will be able to move us, will be able to remove us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the promise of Psalm 15:5 in Romans 8. And in John 16, 33, Jesus spoke to me. He said, I have said these things to you, 
that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Right? There's a promise. We are God's people. And if we are God's people, then we will always be God's people. There's nothing that can take that away from us. There's nothing that can separate us from God. There's no, there's no one that can snatch us out of His hand. And one of my favorites is from Revelation 1, in verses 17 and 18. John, when he's been given the revelation, this is the first time that he sees Jesus. He says, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. But He laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Even the things that we fear most, even death, Jesus said, listen, I've already overcome that. I have the keys to death and Hades in my hand. And for His children, there's no need to worry. So, brothers and sisters, here's what I see at the end of verse 5 here. That if your hope is in Christ, you will never be hopeless. Ever. And it's such good news. It's such a wonderful reminder. But this type of life still seems like a daunting task, doesn't it? Living blamelessly. Always trying to do what is right. Having integrity on the inside and the out. And we still think, I can't do all of those things. I can't ever be that type of person. The type of person that's described in this psalm, that's not me. And I agree on your own, it's not. And on my own, it's not me either. But the promise is, it wasn't revealed at the time the psalmist wrote this, but it's been revealed to us in the gospel. The promise is that we're not blameless and that we're not right because of who we are. It's not based on our own merit. It's because of Jesus Christ. It's because of what He's made available to us. It's because God looked at us and saw who we were and saw what our life was like and He loved us enough to, in the person of Jesus, step out of heaven into this world that we live in and to live the perfect life that none of us did. A literally blameless life. Literally always doing what was right. Always speaking truth in His heart. That's the type of life that Jesus lived. And he still, he died a death that you deserve to die and that I deserve to die. He took the punishment and the wrath of God for our sins. Why? Because he loves us. He did it so that he could offer to us salvation. So now when we respond to faith in Jesus Christ, we know for certain that all these things are true. That we are right before God. That we are reconciled to God. That we are literally allowed into God's presence. And one day, we'll be allowed into His physical presence. It won't be in a tent. It won't be in a temple. But we'll be in His presence in heaven forever and ever. We are made pure and whole and right and perfect and free. Not because we're all those things on our own. Because Jesus was all those things. And when we have faith in Him, they are imparted to us. They are given to us. Isn't that good news? And so I, I love this one other quote. It's the last quote I'm going to give you this week. Unless I see you later today, I may give you another one. But in the sermon. 
We do these things that we read in these verses. We do these things that we see in the scriptures. Not to make us acceptable to God. This ver- If you read Psalm 15 on its own merit, it can start to sound like legalism. Like you're walking up to the door of the temple and they're going through this checklist. Are you blameless? You always do what is right? You speak the truth in your heart? If you do all these things, you can come in. And if not, you need to leave. But we know that's not the picture of Scripture. It's not what Scripture is. Scripture is not about legalism. It's about grace. It's about forgiveness by grace through faith. So Derek Kidner had a really good quote about this this way. He said, The qualities the psalm describes are those that God creates in a man, not those he finds in them. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself wanting to live a life that is pleasing to God, do not be mistaken and think that that's because you're better than everybody else, but recognize humbly that it's because God has given you a new heart. If you find yourself wanting to please God and wanting to follow the Scriptures and wanting to understand the Bible so that you can live that type of life, don't think it means that you're just the best that has ever been. Because the truth of the Scripture is that any of us that are there, we have, been, we have had our mind renewed by the Word of God, that we have been given a new heart and a new mind, and that we've been given the Holy Spirit of God not because we earned it. We've been given those things as a gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so God makes us the type of people that can sojourn in His tent and that can dwell on His holy hill. Is that good news to you this morning? It's good news to me this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and that's not good news though because you find yourself not wanting to live a life pleasing to God. You have no desire to do that. If you're just honest, that's not a desire that you have. You don't care what the Bible says. You want to live the way that you want to live. And I would say if you are here this morning and you find yourself in that camp, I would love to have a conversation with you about it. If you say, what does that mean? Why am I this way? I'd love for us to talk about this idea of how, how does anybody have a renewed heart and a renewed mind? What does it mean to have faith in Jesus Christ? I would love to discuss those things with you. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to be mean to you. I won't even wear a tie next time we meet. But grab me. Send me a text. Before you get out of here, let me know and let's find a time that we can sit down and discuss these things because these are eternally important things. I also ask you this morning, if you're here and you are a Christian and you have these desires, are you living this type of life? Do you try and make sure that your life is blameless in the fact that you want to please God? Do you try and have integrity in your walk or you just put on a good show for everybody around you? And I'd also say, because I know that there are a lot of you here today that are suffering and that are hurting and that are worried and that are anxious, worried about all sorts of things, anxious about all sorts of things, could you remember this morning and rest in the promise that those type of people, those that live this way, those people that are God's people, will never be moved. That if your hope is in Christ, you'll never be hopeless. I want to invite you to stand. Brother Shane's going to come. This morning, our, our response time is going to be that we're going to sing Blessed Assurance. Right? That idea that we are assured as God's people, that we will always be God's people, and that nothing will separate us from Him. 
So as we sing that, if you have questions that you need to ask, come and ask them. If you want to pray where you are, if you want somebody to pray with you, you can come and I'll pray with you. Or if you just want to sing out of joy for knowing that that blessed assurance that the song talks about is truly something that you have, then do that. But you respond however the Lord leads you, as Brother Shane leads us in the hymn of invitation. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Heir of salvation, the rest. Visions of rapture burst on my side angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy whispers of love this is my story this is my song praising my Savior all the day long this is my story this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Thank you. If you would be seated for just a moment, we do have some announcements today. First of all, let me say thank you for being here. If you're a guest with us, then you are a special guest to us, and we're thankful that you came and joined us. If I